From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief. With this week's Eagle's Eye View, this is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. I've chosen three articles to review uh, with you this week, and I'm recording this on February 11, 2019. The first two have to do with the current treatment of stroke, and then the last one is an important paper published this week in The Lancet that has to do with cardiac risk assessment before non-cardiac surgery. So the first paper is entitled Pre-Hospital Transdermal Glyceryl Trinitrate in Patients with Ultra-Acute Presumed Stroke. It's the RIGHT-2 Clinical Phase 3 trial. It's an ambulance-based, randomized, sham-controlled, blinded trial. Very impressive study. And the report came out in The Lancet. So the investigators did a multi-center, paramedic-delivered, ambulance-based, prospective, randomized, sham-controlled, blind endpointed Phase 3 trial in patients, adults with presumed stroke symptoms within four hours. They had to have certain neurological findings that confirmed the likelihood of stroke, and they had to have a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 120 systolic. And they were randomized to either this nitrate preparation, uh, five milligrams daily for four days, or a similar sham dressing. This was a transdermal nitrate delivery system. And then the treatment was continued after the patients were in the hospital. The paramedics were unmasked to the treatment, but the participants were masked. They didn't know what type of therapy they had. And the main outcome was seven-level modified Rankin scale at 90 days. And this was assessed by a central telephone follow-up. And the people making the phone calls also were masked to a treatment. And they analyzed the data in several ways, first looking at patients who clearly had a stroke or a TIA, and then everybody, including folks that did not end up having a stroke. So uh, 516 paramedics from eight ambulance services in the UK randomized over 1,100 patients, equally split between the two groups. And it took about 70 minutes to randomize. It turned out that about 52% of the patients had a stroke, 145 or 13% had an intracerebral hemorrhage, and 9% or 109 had a TIA. Roughly 25% of the patients ended up not having a stroke or TIA. The nitrate lowered the systolic pressure by about six points and the diastolic pressure by two and a half points at hospital admission. In the final analysis, there was no difference in the modified Rankin scale between the participants who got the drug and those who got sham, so they were relatively similar. The same could be true whether you looked at patients who had confirmed stroke, patients who had TIA, etc., and there was no difference in secondary endpoints either. But interestingly, if you look more carefully at the data, it actually suggested the possibility of a trend for a worse outcome in the group of patients getting the nitrate. And there were 36 deaths in the group that got nitrates versus 23 in the sham group, p-value 0.09. And if you look at serious adverse events, also there were 188 total in the nitrate group and 170 in the sham, the p-value 0.16. And if you look particularly at the group of patients who had hemorrhage uh, or very early stroke or severe stroke, there might have been a trend for worse outcomes with the nitrate, which is, as as described, actually lowered the systolic pressure somewhat. This trial is important for a couple of reasons. The first, of course, is the notion of using paramedic-derived clinical trials in the field for acute cardiovascular emergencies, and in this case, presumed stroke. And I think this is a very important study from that point of view. Obviously, the big deal here is if you don't know if the uh, stroke is hemorrhagic or ischemic, 
then this clearly can have an effect on whether a blood pressure lowering strategy would be beneficial. And in this case, nearly 10% of patients who had hemorrhage, it actually looked like lowering the blood pressure was potentially harmful. So a great study, clearly an important landmark in terms of the use of field-derived randomization in patients with acute cardiovascular injuries. And I thought a second companion paper that I might just add to this one this week was sort of a real-world treatment trends analysis of endovascular stroke therapy that came out this week in stroke. And there's a couple of key things for us to remember about what's happening in the stroke field. First, endovascular stroke therapy uh, performance is increasing over time. And this is a huge shift from 2006 to 2016. The big jump happened in 2015 when there were several randomized trials suggesting that early endovascular therapy and appropriately selected candidates with early stroke might have a real effect on uh, overall outcomes. So far, the study suggests that a higher procedural volume is associated with an increased number of centers performing this strategy, and uh, clearly there is evidence of improved procedural outcomes over time. There's been continuous improvement in the rate of good outcomes, especially as centers and the nation have experienced higher volumes. Improvements in patient selection and technical performance of endovascular therapy and post-procedure care have also led to some improvements, particularly neurocritical care and neurosciences nursing care are really increasing the therapy and increasingly good outcomes. And we're seeing stroke systems of care that are allowing this to occur in a most expeditious way. And our center is part of a statewide effort to telestroke care where carefully selected patients are often endovascular treatment at the closest hospital to their place of living. There appears to be some relationship between volume and outcomes, but suffice it to say that clearly in rural areas, the notion of high volume center would never occur. And so creating these connections, these network stroke care and having endovascular specialists hopefully distributed well across the country will lead to improved care, not only in higher volume places, but potentially also lower volume places. We still don't know whether it would be better to transfer a patient from a lower volume center to a higher volume center or treat the patient at that center itself. This is the kind of thing that clearly is challenging in our current healthcare climate and needs to be thought about as we go forward. Uh, the last paper I want to talk about is called The Association of Left Ventricular Ejection Fraction and Symptoms uh, with Mortality After Elective Non-Cardiac Surgery Among Patients with Heart Failure. And this paper was published by a number of colleagues in JAMA just this past week. And for years, you may remember the EGLE criteria and the revised risk criteria have said that heart failure is among those factors that predicts cardiac risk after non-cardiac surgery. This study really takes this from kind of a single sense of risk to a much more stratified analysis that I think is very important for us, and, and virtually all of us deal with our non-cardiac surgery patients. So this was an analysis in the VA system of over 600,000 individuals. They were studied based on the electronic medical record, which, as you know, is quite robust in the VA system, to look at the impact of heart failure, symptomatic and not, and then stratified by LVEF on a 90-day postoperative all-cause mortality. They identified the cases by the electronic record, and they had to have greater than one hospitalization with a heart failure code or greater than or equal to two clinic visits within three years of the surgery. Symptomatic heart failure was defined as the presence, as you might expect, of dyspnea, orthopnea, PND, increased JVP, or pulmonary rolls within 30 days of surgery. 
And then they categorized the LVEF based on uh, non-invasive studies as preserved, that is greater than 50%, mildly reduced 40 to 49, moderately reduced 30 to 39, or severe reduction at less than 30. They also looked at 30-day and uh, one-year mortality and studied things like myocardial infarction, bleeding, length of stay, etc. They also studied the surgical risk, that is how risky the type of surgery was, using a three-level VA surgery complexity matrix score. So overall, this is a really important study, huge analysis of over 600,000 people. About 8% of the population had heart failure. And the hazard ratio, there was a fourfold greater risk of 90-day post-op mortality regardless of LVEF or symptom status. The crude rates were 5.5% with heart failure, 1.2% without. This association remained. It was partially attenuated after adjustment for other factors like surgical complexity and other demographic and comorbid conditions, which you'd expect. We found in the past a hazard ratio of about three, and this study suggests a hazard ratio in that uh, three to four range. Interestingly, among the patients who had heart failure, steadily lower ejection fraction was associated with worse outcome. So if you look at the group with an EF greater than 50, the endpoint at 90 days was 4.9%. If they had moderately impaired LVEF 30 to 39%, the event rate was 6.5%. And if it was less than 30%, it was 8.3%. Also, if the patient had asymptomatic heart failure, the outcome was 4.8%. But if they have symptomatic heart failure, clearly they did worse. And the worst group was the group that had symptomatic heart failure and very low EF. In this study, they had about a 90-day mortality of uh, almost 15%. So it's a very important study. It suggests that symptomatic heart failure does uh, portend increased risk, that the amount of risk clearly goes up with more severe forms of systolic dysfunction. And I think it certainly would argue that we need to understand the nature of heart failure in patients facing non-cardiac surgery in order to optimize therapy. This study, of course, would be even better if the analysis had looked at degrees of diastolic dysfunction. I have a feeling that the same thing would be identified, that in the patients who had preserved left ventricular function, if they were further stratified by the degree of diastolic dysfunction, one would find a similar gradient of risk with higher risk in those who had preserved EF and very poor diastolic function. The study, I think, calls to mind this notion that when we find heart failure, we need to understand its nature and then ask ourselves, is the patient on optimal medical therapy, especially if they're facing an elective non-cardiac operation that involves lots of stress, lots of perioperative stress? So I think this is a very important article. It's a landmark article that adds to our knowledge of this field. And I really want to commend the authors for taking advantage of this huge and fairly robust electronic database that exists in the VA and using it to give us insightful comments. So I've been using a term called AKI, Actionable Knowledge Item, AKI. So the AKI I would have for you on this paper is that when you see heart failure in the preoperative moment, we need to identify its cause. And if the patient has never had it evaluated properly, then certainly before elective non-cardiac surgery, we should be evaluating it and making sure that optimal therapy is being adhered to before the patient goes through an elective operation. So I want to thank you for listening to Eagle's Eye View. I love uh, bringing these articles to you every week. 
This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org, and you could find all this information on the website. You'll find the articles as well as the journal scans. Also look for a new educational feature that we have for you. It's under education and meetings on ACC.org. The educational catalog can give you lots of information. Many of these products that we have for you are perfectly free. Please find us online or wherever you get your podcasts. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you.